Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Murdaugh murder saga, so if you haven't, please go back and listen to part one, which is episode 57, as I won't be re-explaining too much of the genesis of this case or the family century of influence and power, so you're better off listening to these in order, uh, as I have covered them in chronological order and will continue to do so. So listening to them out of order is not going to do you any favors, so again, listen to part one first, and then uh, come back around and listen to to part two here. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. For more information, go to the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com, and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And I mentioned this last episode as well. I've had some people reach out to me and say they can't afford to swing the, the monthly Patreon uh, donation, which I totally understand. Um, if you can, just reach out to me and let me know that you were able to get a couple other people to listen to the podcast. Uh, right now, I think I have you know, the, the analytics are kind of hard to follow, but some somewhere in the realm of about 32 uh, what they call rolling subscribers, so people that are listening to three or more episodes of the podcast, and I'd love to have that number a lot higher. Um, And it may be higher, like I said, the analytics are a little goofy to how they track it. But if I could get, you know, 100 rolling subscribers by the time I go to CrimeCon, I'm hoping to add a few hundred more at CrimeCon. I would really help out the podcast, just just getting the total number of downloads up. So if you can't afford uh, financially uh, to swing anything, I totally understand. Uh, If you want to try to help out the podcast, like I said, just... Let me know either through Facebook or my email that you're able to turn a couple people on to the podcast, and uh, I could also give shout outs for those people that are helping. So, and and that also goes along with please rate and review the show. I think Apple Podcasts has two reviews right now for the show and four or five ratings, uh, which I absolutely appreciate. Those couple people who have. Uh, reviewed the show but if you could just drop a review as people are looking through trying to find a new podcast to listen to i know that uh, you know a big factor is those ratings and reviews Uh, people don't want to dedicate their time to an unknown podcast but if they see some good reviews they might give it a chance and my hope is that after listening to a couple episodes uh, they'll stick around for the 50 plus more that i have at this point but that's enough of the business let's get into this episode of true blue crime so just a quick review in part one we talked about the rich and powerful murdoch family we explored their family tree and discussed how they came to run the south carolina lowlands for almost 86 years after discussing the origins of this family and its influence in the region we dove into the suspicious death of 19 year old stephen smith his body was found in the middle of the road around 4 a.m and was originally ruled a homicide before being changed to a fatal vehicle hit and run. This was despite the lack of any evidence of a vehicle striking Stephen. A year after the death of Stephen, his mother pleaded with the FBI to handle the case as she felt powerful forces in Hampton County were interfering with the investigation. 
While she wouldn't get an answer from the FBI, another death, this time very close to the Murdaughs, is going to raise even more questions. Gloria Satterfield was born on February 18, 1961 in Hampton, South Carolina, and she had been employed as the Murdaugh's housekeeper for many years until her death on February 26, 2018. Roughly three weeks earlier, on February 2nd, she had been working at the Murdaugh's hunting lodge that they called Moselle, but I'll refer to it just as the hunting lodge from now on, when she reportedly tripped and fell over some of the family's dogs. The falls left her with a severe head injury, and her death was due to the injury and subsequent complications. To create some backstory here, Paul Murdaugh's ex-girlfriend, Morgan Doty, told producers of the Netflix series The Murdaugh Murders that just before this injury, Gloria had discovered narcotics taped to the underside of a bed used by Alex Murdaugh. We are going to discuss Alex's involvement in both the use of narcotics as well as the trafficking and sale of a large quantity of drugs. According to Morgan, Gloria went to Paul about the drugs because she was afraid to approach Maggie. Many people assert that Gloria was starting to learn too much about Alex's illegal behavior before she died. Now, after her fall, she was apparently discovered by Maggie. And according to the sources that I found, Maggie's first call was to Alex to tell him what had happened. Then, according to the 911 call, they were both present during that call to advise the dispatcher of the injury. So maybe this was reported wrong, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense as the first or shortly after the first, the second call should have been to 911. And this means the story of events means the Murdaugh's waited for Alex to drive to the property from his work office before they called 911. And I'm again, I'm just going off the source material here that said that Alex received the call while he was at work. And as we're going to learn about Alex, his statements as to his location during events is proven to not be truthful at times. So one of two things happened here. Either it was misdocumented that at the time of Gloria's, and I'm going to refer to accident from now on, although Anytime I say accident, just think that I'm using quotation marks around it because the, the entire thing's going to be called into question, but it's just easiest to refer to it as, as Gloria's accident. When it's first reported, Alex is supposedly at work at his office when this accident occurs. And I guess it's not completely strange to think that Maggie's first call would have been to Alex, especially considering that Gloria was an employee of theirs and this occurred at her workplace and he's a personal injury lawyer. So just out of self-preservation, most people might think the first thing to do is to call your husband who's a lawyer. But as we're going to talk about uh, her injury here, if, if that's true, then they waited the time period that it took Alex to drive from his office to this hunting lodge before they called 911. And just based on kind of the remote location, this hunting lodge is on like 1,700 acres of land kind of in the middle of nowhere out in the county. So there's going to be some amount of time. I don't care if it's 10, 15, 20 minutes. There's going to be a drive time between the office and this hunting lodge. And... 
we'll talk about it, but anybody in her condition is going to need immediate medical care. So delaying that, waiting until Alex gets there to call 911, that should have raised some red flags for the investigation. But secondly, the other option is that Alex wasn't at his office when this call occurred. Now, we're going to find out later that this hunting lodge, like I said, it's on 1,700 acres. So there's a lot of different outbuildings and areas where, and the family is known to communicate via cell phone while they're at the same location because of the size of this place. So it's possible instead of at the office, Alex was on the property somewhere. And that's when she called him to basically say, Kate, come to the main house. Gloria's had an accident. But as we know later on, Alex wants to distance himself from any situation where there might be criminal charges. So maybe he tells officers originally that he was at his office, but there's no investigation into it, which is really frustrating as well. Because when I was a police officer, if there was any type of serious injury or potential for death for somebody, especially if it was occurring in some type of a workplace incident, and I know that insurance companies are going to be involved, it's just easier to document and investigate that case from the very beginning and not be contacted by an insurance company or an investigator down the road to find out why there isn't a report and why there aren't photos and why there isn't all this stuff. It's just part of your public duty as a police officer to investigate this stuff. And as we're going to find out, as far as I can tell, there's no police report, there's no photos, there's no you know, documentation of any type related to this this accident. And as part of a police investigation, as I said, it would have been a red flag if I was told by somebody that our employee fell and hurt themselves on our property and then we waited 10, 15, 20 minutes for one of the members of the family to arrive before we called 911. I would have immediately been asking, why did you wait? You know, it's there's no reason to wait if this person needs immediate medical help. Or if you believe that that person was on the property and they're just telling you they weren't to try to distance themselves, well, then it's a simple investigation going to the law office and asking, was Alex here at this time? If he wasn't, then you got to go back to Alex and say, well, your office says you weren't at the office. Where were you? And I mean, it can go down at that point to getting subpoena information for GPS locations, for the phones, for the vehicles, whatever it might be, which they're eventually going to do later on in another case uh, related to Alex. But if it had been done in the Gloria case from the very beginning, I think a different picture would have presented itself. But we'll get back to the story and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go on here. Now, in the 911 call, it is very clear that both Maggie and Alex are there because they both talk to the dispatcher. Maggie describes the fall as a fall, quote, up the stairs, end quote, after tripping over the family's four dogs. And Alex is in the background saying that Gloria couldn't talk because she had cracked her head and was bleeding from her left ear and the top of her head. And as I mentioned, bleeding from the ear is usually indicative of major head trauma and a sign that swelling will occur that will cause brain damage. So waiting for Alex to come home during that crucial time is inexcusable, but it's 
as I mentioned, it's also likely he was never at the office and was, in fact, at the home the entire time because he may have had a part in the accident. So, again, we're not talking about an employee that, you know, tripped over some dogs and bumped her head a little bit and she's got a minor cut or maybe a concussion. I mean, even then I could understand kind of treating it as a, okay, there was an accident, but it's not really bad. But when you have blood coming out of an ear, that's a pretty good sign that you've got either a skull fracture or damage in some form on the brain itself where you have a bleed. And if that isn't immediately treated by doctors, if and a lot of times it's putting somebody into a coma to, to lower the brain activity so that it doesn't swell as much. It's just different drugs that prevent the swelling, all that kind of stuff. But that stuff needs to happen almost immediately because once that brain swells and there's damage, a lot of that damage is not repairable. So again, whether it's 10, 15, 20 minutes for Alex to drive to the property before they call 911, it's just an inexcusable amount of time. And if Alex is on the property, why is he lying and saying that he wasn't on the property at the time? So it brings a lot of questions into this, into what should have been an investigation. But despite her death being a workplace accident, no coroner was called and no autopsy was performed. Her death certificate stated her cause of death was natural causes. Now she didn't die that day, but roughly three weeks later due to ongoing brain damage from the accident. And she was mostly unresponsive during her time after the accident and her family was never able to learn from her what actually happened on that day. So we'll go back to some parts of the story don't even make sense. It, it, Maggie says in the call that she tripped up the stairs. Now I can understand tripping over dogs. My dog loves to kind of be at my feet. She's a rescue, so she's got some you know, separation anxiety and likes to be hanging right by me. And so there's been many times where I'm working in the kitchen and I almost you know trip over her. And there's a lot of dogs like that. And we're talking their dogs, or I think we're labs. My my dog's a Aussie cattle dog mix, so she's smaller, much smaller than a lab, but. I can imagine some big dogs, if you're working, maybe you're carrying something and this dog gets underfoot and you trip and you fall, that you could be injured. But a trip up the stairs, usually when you fall, if you've ever stubbed your toe going up a flight of stairs or whatever it is, you might fall forward, but usually you can catch yourself because of the way the angle of falling up the stairs works. It's not very common that I would think people get injured, have head injuries, I should say, from falling up the stairs because our bodies are designed to prevent those types of injuries. Now, if you fall down the stairs or fall backwards, if you were somehow you know, walking down the stairs and then tripped over a dog, lose your balance, and you go directly backwards you've got no way to catch yourself and your head hits something i could see that causing the serious head injury so it's just those little details that are being relayed by the murdaws at this point that don't make sense whether it's alex at his office whether it's the fall up the stairs but again gloria does quote unquote survive this accident in the beginning but 
I'm guessing just based on the delay in getting her care, because she was eventually air ambulanced to a hospital. That's how bad of a condition she was in when the paramedics got there. That delay in getting her help may have been enough to make sure that she wasn't able to communicate what actually happened that day and ultimately led to her death. But again, if you have to be airlifted for a workplace accident, to me as a police officer, I would have documented that somehow. I would have taken photos. I would have gotten recorded statements from all the witnesses. Would have locked people into their stories. If Alex is saying he's at the office again, that could be verified, but you have him on on recording so that when you go to the office and talk to everybody and they say he wasn't here and you go back to him, he doesn't say, well, I never said that. I said I was here. No, I've got you on recording saying you were at the office. So again, just these little red flags should have launched an investigation that would have produced a lot more information, especially later on. But despite, again, her death was, I guess, since it occurred in a hospital, it's not super uncommon that a coroner isn't called but it's what started this her death being a a workplace incident that you would think that at some point somebody would say just in case this isn't on the up and up we should at least have an autopsy done it's not a natural causes death she didn't have a terminal disease she didn't have you know, some uh, uh, out of nowhere uh, aneurysm or something along those lines. She was a mostly healthy person until she had this workplace accident that ultimately led to her death. So this wasn't natural causes. Her death was from an accident, but there's, as we're going to see, there's some other forces at play here. Now, Alex would approach Gloria's two surviving sons and advised them to use Corey Fleming as their lawyer. But he fails to mention that Corey Fleming was a close personal friend. Fleming had been Alex's roommate in college and was godfather to one of his boys. And Alex had recently raised the insurance premiums for his homeowner's insurance to several million dollars, and after the accident, he arranged to have Fleming sue him and his insurance providers. Alex, an expert in personal injury lawsuits, knew he could be held responsible for Gloria's death and his insurance would make the payments on his behalf. So while this is extremely shady and parts of it likely weren't legal, from the surface level it appeared on the straight and narrow. A workplace-related death results in one lawyer suing another and his insurance on behalf of the decedent's two sons. The total policy was around $4.3 million, and after court and lawyer fees, the two sons were supposed to receive a combined $2.7 million. And this large policy was only taken out one month before the accident. So, again, from surface level, if you don't look at it with any level of suspicion, you've got this terrible accident involving the dogs and the housekeeper. You've got her unfortunately passing away. You've got a very prominent lawyer suing another prominent lawyer and his insurance for this workplace accident and you've got a payout that's of a large sum that's supposed to go to the sun so if you look at it just from that surface level nothing appears super 
shady, I guess, about it. But if you if you break it down as I did into the he's he's getting this insurance policy a month before the accident. There's reports that Gloria may have found some things in the hunting lodge that she wasn't supposed to see. There's discrepancies between the timing of when Gloria fell. There's discrepancies about how she fell, you know, falling up the stairs and then sustaining a head injury. Uh, there's, you know, if you look closer and find out that this lawyer who's suing on behalf of the housekeeper is actually a close personal friend of the employer. I mean, all of it, like I said, when you break it down, you realize how orchestrated and calculated this whole thing might be, but with nobody looking at it, no autopsy being done, as far as I can tell, no re police report, no documentation, no photos, no anything being done, if you just go at it from the surface level, you just go, oh, well, it was a terrible accident and the, the sons are going to get some money. But I am going to jump forward in the, the timeline here a little bit because I, I think it's important that we talk about how this continues to be questionable. Uh, problems would arise when the sons never saw a penny of the payout. While it wouldn't be discovered until a couple of years later, Alex had arranged for payments from the settlement to be put into a fund at a bank where he held several fraudulent accounts. The CEO of the bank was a longtime friend of Alex and was complicit in the illegal schemes and would eventually be removed from the bank that his family started over a hundred years prior. Alex would also later admit that no dogs were present during Gloria's fall and that she was not there for work purposes, but he refused to elaborate any further. But I take that to mean the, ac the accident was actually some form of an assault and she was lured into the ambush by Alex in a premeditated scheme to kill Gloria and cl collect on his own insurance. But we'll talk about that a little bit down the road because this stuff isn't happening in 2018 when Gloria passes. And, and again, there's, there has been no connection to Stephen Smith's death in 2015. And then at this point, the family, you know, there might be some rumblings around town. Gloria's from Hampton, South Carolina, so she's got family in the area. There may be some, you know, people who know a little bit more than the surface level that are seeing things being a little shady but it's not until this next incident that things are going to hit the national news and then everything's going to start to get looked at under a microscope so before it would be discovered that alex absconded with the money that was supposed to be paid to gloria's son a tragic incident occurred that propelled the story to front page news on the evening of february 23rd 2019 Paul Murdoch and five of his closest friends were out doing what teenagers like to do. They had taken one of Alex's boats to one of the family's island properties. This 22-acre sea island, one of roughly eight islands owned by the Murdaughs and his real estate holdings company, served as the start-off point for their night of fun. The teenagers set out on a 17-foot Sea Hunter center console boat and headed to a nearby island to enjoy an oyster bake and drinks. According to the boat's GPS, they docked at the island around 8 p.m. and stayed until midnight. After leaving the island, they traveled inland and docked near a bar. While they were all under 21, Paul had an ID that belonged to his brother Buster, who was over 21, so he was able to get into a bar with his buddy Connor Cook. 
They each did two shots according to the bar security camera and found the rest of their crew before heading back to the boat. By this time, Paul was extremely intoxicated and his alter ego that friends called Timmy was on full display. When Paul got drunk, he turned into another person, a violent and dangerous person who wanted to fight everyone and often stripped out of his clothes. On this evening, despite it being around 40 degrees, Paul stripped down to his boxers and began acting like Timmy. His friends said that in addition to Paul stripping out of his clothes when drunk, he would get violent shakes in his hands and his eyes would get as big as dollar bills. They said all of these symptoms were present that evening. His friends knew it was a bad idea to let Paul drive the boat that night, but they were afraid he would get violent if they pushed too hard. At one point, Paul was doing donuts in the water, spinning the boat in circles while his friends begged him to drive them home. Paul's girlfriend, Miley, must have tried to get him to stop acting erratic, and as a result, he went to the front of the boat and slapped her and pushed her down before calling her a name. Connor Cook took over the wheel at this point and started driving them home, but Paul pushed him aside and told him it was his boat and he would drive it. The night was cool, around 40 degrees, and a dense fog had settled in, making the already dark passage even more treacherous. Soon, Paul threw the throttle forward so the bow of the boat rose up and they raced towards a bridge. The boat fully accelerated and struck a bridge support on Archer's Creek. The impact of the crash threw them all from the boat. By the time everyone got their bearings, it was obvious that 19-year-old Mallory Beach, Connor Cook's girlfriend, was missing. They called out for her, but she wasn't anywhere in sight. Connor called 911 to report the boat crash and the disappearance of Mallory. The dispatcher had a hard time understanding Connor, and it was later found that the impact had caused Connor's jaw to break. When the dispatcher finally located the boat crash, deputies were immediately met with resistance by Paul Murdaugh. They were told by Connor Cook that they were dealing with Alex Murdaugh's son, and he was untouchable. The injured teens were rushed to a local hospital. Soon after arrival, Alex and his father, Randolph III, began an operation of damage control for Paul. They were overheard talking to some of the teens, telling them to tell police they didn't know who was driving the boat. A security guard later testified that Alex was overheard on his phone saying, don't worry, she's gone, and he believed the conversation was about the missing teen Mallory. It is also alleged that during the investigation, Connor Cook stated that Paul had pushed his housekeeper down the stairs and she died and nothing ever happened. This was, however, disputed by Connor's cousin Anthony Cook, who on the Netflix documentary said that Paul would never hurt Gloria because he saw her as like a mother to him. Treated unlike any other fatal boat accident, Paul was not arrested, booked, given field sobriety tests, or photographed that evening. It would take days to arrange an interview between him and the police, a planned maneuver on the part of his family to create legal barriers to the investigation. As a part of a medical test, blood was taken from Paul, which was later tested to be at 0.24 or three times the legal limit to operate a vehicle. And so before we get into more about this damage control, because it's going to be ongoing here, we'll talk about this crash in and of itself. So Paul was already, as I mentioned in part one, known to be this problem child, troublemaker, uh, didn't follow the rules, didn't, didn't really care because whatever he did, he, he never got in trouble for it because his, 
he was rich and his father would just get him out of any trouble he got into. And that type of behavior is going to continue to get more and more dangerous. And in this case, the reason I mentioned the type of boat it is, uh, these center console boats, basically, usually the console is actually a standing console that is smack dab in the middle of the boat, both front and back and side to side. So unlike most fishing boats that you see on lakes, that the driver is going to sit down on one side, usually the right side of the boat behind some type of a windshield. And this boat is more likely that the person driving it's going to be standing or sitting in a high type of a chair in the center position. And what this does is it actually makes it very easy for just about anybody to drive the boat. And we saw this when Paul left the driving position to go assault his girlfriend. Is Connor Cook's able to step in real quick and drive the boat at that point? But Paul quickly comes back, basically pushes him aside, saying he's going to drive the boat because it's his boat. And this is going to create some problems for the investigation because unlike a vehicle where it's difficult to change drivers in the middle of you know a drive so whoever's either found in the driver's seat or there's evidence this person was in the driver's seat it's usually pretty easy to determine who's driving a vehicle even if there's six people in there whereas on, on a boat where anybody at any second can be driving that boat it is going to be a little bit more difficult for police to put paul behind the wheel and Alex and his father, who are both lawyers, know this. And so they're going to go into every hospital room kind of unopposed, even though there's police officers there that are trying to investigate this because they have a pretty good idea that Mallory has lost her life at this point. They're just going to allow uh, Alex Murdaugh and Randy Third to go into all these rooms where, these, where Connor is being seen for his broken jaw and the other... Uh, teenagers had various injuries as well and be alone in there talking to these kids and this is part of their damage control and if what they're already they're already thinking eight steps ahead of the program and they're already thinking of ways that they can make this more difficult to charge Paul and so if they can get one person one of the teenagers to say they don't know who was driving the boat when it crashed then the police case against Paul gets just a little bit less and less for every ounce of doubt they can introduce into the investigation. So it's, again, it's full damage control going on at the hospital. And it seemed pretty obvious if you watch the documentary or you read anything about it, that the teenagers all said to the police, especially because there's a time period before they're all transported to the hospital, and this is where Connor Cook is saying stuff like, don't you know who was driving the boat? It's it's Paul Murdaugh, his dad's Alex Murdaugh. He, you know, he can get away with anything. And keep in mind, when this is going on, Connor Cook is realizing that it's his girlfriend, Mallory Beach, who's missing. And he's already probably put it through in his, you know, in his mind that he's just lost the love of his life. And it's Paul's fault. So Connor is actually very forthcoming with police with information Paul was driving that that Paul had done all this stuff and 
and Paul was the reason that Mallory was missing. But despite this, police aren't acting as if Paul is a suspect in this fatal boat crash. And whether you want to say there's already some influence at play or whether just the sheer number of teenagers that are intoxicated and are telling different stories is making this investigation difficult. The fact that it seemed pretty obvious that Paul would have been driving the boat and that he wasn't arrested, wasn't given field sobriety, wasn't any of this kind of stuff, all of that's going to come back and look really bad on the sheriff's department after the fact. And I can remember a couple times when we had some high-profile people get arrested for DWI in our city or whatever it might be. And, you know, our standing policy was you treat everybody the same because the last thing you need is for a month, two months, a year, whatever it might be, somebody to dig through reports and find out that you treated somebody differently. If the Murdaws want to fight this whole investigation in court, if they want to come after you and sue you afterwards thinking that you made a false arrest, whatever it might be, you just do your job. And at the end of the day, you're able to say, I, I treated this as if it was any other fatal boat accident. We identified who we believed to be the driver. We investigated them for boating while intoxicated. And in, in Minnesota, it'd be, there'd be a criminal vehicular homicide charge that they'd be looking at as well. And the person would be at the minimum in Minnesota, it's a mandatory booking. So at the minimum, they're going to jail to get fingerprinted and photographed. And they want to get bailed out at that point, if whatever it might be. But at least everything that you do as a police officer at the time of investigation is what you're supposed to be doing. Nobody can ever come back afterwards and say you didn't handle this properly. But if we look at what they're doing at the hospital, the damage control was not just for Paul. It was also for Alex and Paul's brother Buster, who had provided alcohol to the miner at the Oyster Bake that evening. And Alex had allowed Paul to drive his boat, knowing he had consumed alcohol. And so this is a legal nightmare for most people, but the Murdaws were doing what the Murdaws were known for. And when I mean that, or when I say that, I mean, most people see things as just the criminal side of things, yes, Paul is going to be facing a number of criminal charges for what happened that night. But if you're a lawyer or you know law to any degree, you know that it's not going to just be Paul who's going to face consequences for this. Anybody who provided alcohol to Paul, who allowed them to use a vehicle that they, while they knew them to be intoxicated, they've opened themselves up to civil liability as well. So Alex knows this is his boat. It was his alcohol and Buster's alcohol that the teens were drinking from eight to midnight before they set out in Alex's boat. So they're trying to, you know, CYA cover their own ass at that point uh, by putting as many legal hurdles into this situation as possible. Now Alex is also going to arrange legal representation for Connor Cook and surprise surprise it's in the form of his buddy Corey Fleming. So this is the same attorney that had worked with Alex to sue on behalf of Gloria's sons and it was later believed that the two lawyers 
had a plan to convince Connor Cook to take the fall for Paul and possibly with a promise of some form of payout for being the fall guy. So it's actually probably cheaper if they can somehow get Connor Cook to take some type of a payout for him to take the blame for the the time in which the boat hit the bridge because that takes a lot of civil liability off of Alex because he's going to be able to say, I didn't give Connor permission to drive my boat. You know, He did that on his own. He did it while he was intoxicated. It wasn't, maybe they can't prove as well that Connor got drunk off of the alcohol because he did the two shots at the bar. So maybe they're going to say he got mostly drunk from those two shots at the bar, so it's the bar's fault. Not He didn't drink much of the island. Whatever they're going to try to set up, they probably have this elaborate plan in place. And they're going to try to get Connor Cook. Now, I guess you would say, unfortunately for Paul, even though I have no bad feelings for him at this point, in terms of, you know, I should say I don't feel bad for him at this point, you know, Connor Cook has lost again his girlfriend, the love of his life. It's going to be very difficult for him to take responsibility for something he didn't do that he's also then got to claim responsibility for the loss of, of the love of his life. I just don't think you're going to get that. Uh, you know, out of Connor Cook. Now later, SLED would investigate potential attempts of members of the Murdoch family to influence law enforcement to not pursue charges against Paul. So as you mentioned, they're not only going into these hospital rooms and talking with all these teenagers. It's alleged that they were also talking to the investigating deputies and anybody else that was involved in this investigation and trying to steer the investigation away from charges against Paul. Unfortunately, Mallory's body was found eight days after the crash on March 3rd in a marshy area several miles from the accident scene. Uh, She had died from a combination of blunt force trauma and drowning, uh, which is why she couldn't be located for for so many days. Mallory Beach's family went on file to went on to file several wrongful death lawsuits against the Murdaughs in March of 2019, and also naming the convenience store that sold the underage teen's liquor and the bar where Paul did his last two shots. On April 18, 2019, Paul was charged with multiple felony counts to include the most serious of boating under the influence causing death and two counts of boating under the influence causing serious injury. He would appear in court and plead not guilty, and the judge released him on bail but refused to attach the standard conditions such as limited travel and alcohol monitoring. And and this is again what why this story stays at this time so front and center. Now, Mallory's family in those eight days that she's missing, they're gonna take to social media, you know, hoping beyond hope that Mallory somehow survived this boat crash and she's out there somewhere. And I mean, I'm sure in their their heart of hearts, they knew that wasn't the case, but they're at the same time that they're building all of this, you know, hope that, that Mallory might be found. They're also bringing this story front and center. So everybody's looking at this as, as now a case where a rich spoiled brat with no fear of consequences brazenly did something dangerous and reckless that cost the life of somebody else and now there's this investigation going on and this rich and powerful legal family is trying to avoid any consequences for their rich spoiled brat son 
So when that story hits the news, of course public sentiment is going to turn quickly against the Murdaws, and everybody's going to be screaming for justice. So it's, you know, it's almost a, a month after the actual action itself before these multiple felony charges are filed. So again, I think that's in part because of the horrible and hurdle-filled investigation that was done after the accident. And I use investigation in quotation marks. This is now the second time, a third if you count Stephen Smith, where the lack of action by the uh, police or, or the coroner, or whichever case you look at, the investigation is done in such a way that it just boggles the mind of somebody who's in law enforcement or who has investigated these types of crimes. In most cases of a of a fatal accident like this involving alcohol, those charges are within 48 hours because the person is arrested that night and they're sitting in jail and they have to be charged within the, the 48 hours. So the fact that it took almost a month to reach these charges, again, either shows you the ineptitude of the investigation or the amount of hurdles legally put into the investigation by the Murdaws, or maybe it's a combination of both in this case. But it's just another continuation of these crimes that are occurring with either direct connection or somewhat indirect connection with the Murdaws that is they're starting to pile up and people are starting to pay attention to this family and what's going on. However, just three months later, all of Paul's criminal legal problems would come to an end with two more shocking crimes. And we'll cover more of that in part three of the Murdaugh family saga. And just again, on the closing argument um, about what's going on here with this investigation, you know, the last thing I mentioned in there, the judge released him on bail but refused to attach standard conditions such as limited travel and alcohol monitoring. It takes almost a month that he's not facing any charges he's free to do whatever he wants before he finally gets charged with these crimes and when he's finally charged with the crimes he is still not treated the same as everybody else it said his instead of being booked into jail uh, which when you hear people saying booked booking into a prison means that you're getting photographed and fingerprinted and the reason that's happening is because if you don't go through that process you can say you are John Doe and until they verify who you are by identity they aren't going to charge you or release you I should say because they don't want somewhere down the road if you take off and they issue a warrant they don't want to issue the warrant for the wrong person so they have to prove who you are through fingerprints and photographs so if somewhere down the road you get picked up and you're still claiming you're John Doe, or now you're using your real name, they run these fingerprints through and say, no, this guy was arrested in South Carolina under John Doe, and he has a warrant. So eventually things are going to catch up to you, but you have to go through that process to make sure that the right person is in custody and is going to be charged, and before they're released, you have their fingerprints and photographs on file. So he's going to go through this process, unlike most people that have to get booked through a jail, 
he's going to go through this process as an initial hearing where they basically photograph him in the hallway of the courtroom with his street clothes on and then the judge issues these you know unlimited travel he can go wherever he wants and he doesn't have to have alcohol monitoring even though the crime that he's being charged with is operating a you know a boat at three times the legal limit and that's the other thing we didn't talk about some people hear these numbers come out something like 0.24 and they think well that doesn't sound too high and if you aren't in the medical field or you've seen intoxicated people if you aren't in law enforcement uh you know being somebody who ran the basically what we call originally it was the intoxilizer machine and then eventually it was the uh, dmt machine but basically it was the certified blood alcohol breath machine that we had for dwis i was one of our operators for it and as a part of the trainings for that we would go through controlled drinking environments where we purposely get somebody drunk put them through the field sobriety tests they would be constantly be getting administered the preliminary breath test the pbts to keep them around that 08 level which is the legal drinking level and in, in almost all states i believe it's the federal guidelines in order for you to receive highway funding and that kind of stuff your your statutes have to say 0.08 for for driving um but people would be very 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 drunk at an 08 i mean even myself i'm a, I'm a bigger guy um but if i got myself and I, I don't drink a lot but if if i got myself up to an 08 I was feeling it. I mean, I was buzzed. You know, I had coordination issues, balance issues. I was feeling good, but I was definitely feeling drunk. And I don't know in my life if I've ever been probably above maybe a 0.14. I mean, I there's been just a few times in my life I've probably been there. And... Like, I can't even function at that level. So, granted, the more you drink, the higher your blood alcohol level can be and you can still function. But being a 0.24, at 0.24, I would be blacked out probably. And at 0.24, he's making somewhat conscious decisions. He's walking. He's driving a boat. He's doing all this stuff at a 0.24. But... He's obviously extremely intoxicated. He's got this alter ego, this Timmy out, all that kind of stuff. So as a judge, if I was reading that a 19-year-old was operating a boat at a .24 and somebody's life is over as a result of that, the one of the most important conditions I'm going to put on any type of uh, recognizance bail is going to be alcohol monitoring. I do not want that person drinking because it's only a matter of time before their drinking is going to lead to somebody else dying. So again, he's not even treated the same by the judges, which is going to continue to look bad for this county, their investigations, their treatment to this family and everything. It's, it's, it's just not the way that this should be going. But again, we will get even more into this shocking saga in part three. So thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.